Good morning. My name is Andy, one of the pastors. Thanks for coming to worship with us today. Um, before we jump into the scripture, I just have one quick announcement. Um, this month, this summer, I have a, a special birthday that I want to tell you about. Someone is turning 40, and that someone is Chris Cawthorn. Uh, it, Chris usually comes to the second service. Most of you probably know Chris. Some of you may not. Um, he comes to the second service most of the time. He sits right here on the front row, right here on the front row. <laughs> always get confused as to which side. Sometimes he brings a baton, and he conducts the worship team. I don't know if you've ever noticed that. Sometimes he brings his drumsticks, and he, like, rocks out air drumming with the worship team. Uh, Chris is turning 40, and that is a big milestone for someone with Downs. So we are going to celebrate like a family does, and on July 17th, a couple of Sundays from now, we're going to have a cookout out here on the church lawn. We'll have sprinklers set up for the kids. We'll have hot dogs and food and all kinds of stuff, and we will celebrate uh, as a church family and recognize Chris's birthday. So I would encourage you to come out for that. Um, Even if you don't know Chris, that's okay. Come out, get to know each other, hang out, tell Chris happy birthday, and we will celebrate with him. I think that's the only announcement I have. If you want to jump into your Bibles, uh, open in your Bibles, whether it's a paper Bible or a digital Bible, uh, all the way to the very end The last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapters 21 and 22, is where we will be today. We're we're going to step out of Matthew's gospel just for a little bit, um, uh, one one Sunday. And and 100% full disclosure, I've been on vacation all week, so I haven't practiced this sermon at all. You guys are my guinea pigs. Um, And... I didn't write this sermon this week. I actually preached this sermon in 2012 (laughs) at a previous church, and so I just, I'm recycling it. Uh, But I did go over it a little bit, and so, yeah, anyway, um, we're talking about heaven or thy kingdom come. We've just come through the Sermon on the Mount. We saw that the pinnacle, the peak, the summit of human existence is our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. The meaning of life is to live in a loving relationship with God as our Father. That's the Lord's Prayer. It's right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. The next line in the Lord's Prayer is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So I thought it would be fun as we're talking about the kingdom and the kingdom life and what kind of king Jesus is, I thought it would be fun to take a week and look at the coming kingdom. Now, uh, how many of you remember Johnny Cash? That's back when country was good. I'm a little young for Johnny Cash, but I love Johnny Cash. He's one of my favorite singers. And he sang a song in the 70s called No Earthly Good. You guys remember that song? And it's the, the line in the, in the song goes, uh, You're shining your light, yes, and shine it, you should. But you're so heavenly minded, you're no earthly good. Remember that song? Uh, Johnny Cash. Go look it up. It's a great song. Don't look it up right now. You've got to listen to the sermon. <clears throat> but the question is, Is that line true? Can we be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good? So focused on what's coming that we forget about what is here and what is now. The question really is, why should we even think about or preach about heaven? Why are we taking time out to talk about this? Why not focus more on the problems and the challenges that are facing us today instead of some mystical future prophecy that nobody really understands anyway, right? The world has enough of its own problems right here, right now. Isn't it better to deal with those problems and real life 
instead of wasting our time dreaming about some future far-off place that we'll go after we die? Shouldn't we address the issues that we have right in front of us today? Well, I think that heaven does matter. All due respect to Johnny Cash, I think his song is wrong. Uh, it's, we can't be so heavenly minded that we're no earthly good. And let me tell you two reasons why heaven matters today, and then we're going to jump into Revelation. First of all, heaven matters because heaven gives us hope. If you look at the world around us, the narrative of the world around us is dismal, it's dark, it's depressing, it's hopeless. Just spend 10 minutes reading the news, and there you'll see there is no hope. The news, the narrative, the story of the culture and the society and the world in which we live is that we are, we are destroying our planet and we are destroying one another and we are headed to extinction. That's where it's at. That's where it ends. That's what, you, you have 70, 80, 90, maybe 100 years and then your worm food and that's it. No future, no hope. Our whole society, our whole species is just headed for a colossal extinction, uh, and that's where it's it. That's the narrative. That's the story of the world. Read the headlines. That's what you see, right? We're destroying our planet. We're destroying one another. But heaven gives us hope because the teaching, the scripture's teaching about heaven says that this world in which we live is not the end. This life that we're living now is not the end. No, no, it's just the beginning. Death is not the end. This world is not all there is. There is a future coming. Our species is not going to end in extinction because someday Christ is going to return and he's going to set all the wrong things right again. So this isn't the end. This isn't, this isn't all that there is. Heaven matters because heaven gives us hope and hope changes our lives. Hope changes the way that we live. We live out of our hope. We live out of where we put our hope and the things that fill us with hope. If we put our hope in the things that the world and the society tells us matter, if we put our hope in the things that the world says, this is what makes for a meaningful life. If we hope in things like money or power or comfort or status or pleasure, then our lives will be filled with greed and selfishness and fear and bitterness and unfulfilled longings. Our lives will look like the headlines in the news. Why? Because we're putting our hope in the things that the world tells us to hope in. We're putting our hope in the things that the world says are meaningful. And when we do that, when we live that way, our lives look like the headlines in the news, just like the world does, right? But if we put our hope in Jesus and in our citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, well, then our lives are free. I don't have to have more money to feel validated as a human being because I have an eternal inheritance awaiting for me in heaven, right? I don't have to be uh, uh, accepted and approved by others in order to be validated as a human being. Why? Because Christ has already accepted me and he gave his own life for me. Right? I don't have to do I don't have to justify my own existence. I don't have to grind my way through the world earning my right to be here because Christ has already loved me. God has already adopted me as his child. I don't need that status in order to be validated as a human being. I have that status already as a child of God. See, hope changes how we live. The things we hope in change our trajectory in life. That's why heaven matters. Heaven gives us hope and hope changes our lives. Now, before we jump into this, there's one more question we have to ask. 
what do we mean when we say the word heaven? When I say the word heaven, what, am, what exactly am I talking about? Well, what I'm not talking about is the place where your soul goes after you die while you await the return of Christ. See, my kids ask me this all the time. Oh, great-grandma died. Now she's in heaven, right? And someday when I die, I'll go to heaven and I'll see great-grandma again, right? And what I ask my kids when they say that is, what do you mean by the word heaven? Right? Because when, when we die, our souls leave our body and they go to be with the Father. And we await the return of Christ when our bodies will be resurrected. And when I say the word heaven... I'm not talking about that intermediate state while we're waiting for the resurrection, while we're waiting for Christ to return. I'm talking about the final state after Christ has returned, after the dead have been raised, after the final battle, after the big judgment at the end. Once Jesus comes back and establishes his final kingdom forever and ever, where we will physically live with him, that's what I mean when I say the word heaven. A lot of people think heaven is that place where my soul goes after I die. And I'm going to live there in that spiritual existence forever and ever. No, no, that's not what the Bible teaches, actually. We're going to get into that in just a minute. But when I say heaven, I'm not talking about where your soul is waiting for Christ to return. I'm talking about after all that has happened in the final kingdom, the final state of existence where we will live with God forever. That's what we're talking about. That's what Revelation chapters 21 and 22 is about. Now, we'll go most of the way through Revelation 21 and 22. We're not going to hit every single verse, um, but we're going to work our way through. And the question is, what will heaven be like? That final state, that final kingdom where we will live forever after Christ has returned, after we've been raised from the dead, what will that state of existence be like? That's the question, and that's what we're going to look at in Revelation 21 and 22. Uh, and I just have three points for you this morning. First of all, heaven will be here. Thy kingdom come, Jesus prayed, right? God's kingdom is coming here. Heaven will be here. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was also gone. And I saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down from God out of heaven like a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. Heaven is coming down here. Heaven is not some place that we all go to after we die. Heaven is not that perfect golf course in the sky where every swing is a hole in one. Heaven is not that perfect hunting range in the sky where every buck is a pope and young. Right? Heaven is not that perfect scrapbooking place in the sky where you never run out of uh, supplies to make your scrap. Like, that's not what heaven is. Heaven isn't some place far off away in the sky where we'll go after we die. No, no, no. Christianity teaches us that uh, it, it's not about escaping this world to go away to the clouds and live in some spiritual existence forever after we die. That's not a Christian teaching. That's actually an ancient Greek philosophy teaching from a guy named Plato 
who taught that the physical world is bad and the spiritual world is good and the ultimate meaning of life is to escape your body and escape the physical world and live as a spirit being in the spiritual realm forever and ever. And somehow Plato's ideas worked their way into Christianity and so many Christians today think, oh, being a Christian and believing in Jesus is about escaping this world and going away to heaven someday when I die. That's not what the Bible teaches. We're not going anywhere. Heaven is coming to us. Heaven is coming here. Heaven is not heaven because of where it is. Heaven is heaven because of who is there. God is there. He will come and live with us. We will be his people. God himself will be with us. That's what makes it heaven. The fact that God is there in person. And look at the benefits of living with God. Verse 4. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. And there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the one sitting on the throne said, look, I am making everything new. And then he said to me, write this down for what I tell you is trustworthy and true. And he also said, it is finished. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To all who are thirsty, I will give freely from the springs of the water of life. All who are victorious will inherit all these blessings and I will be their God and they will be my children. Heaven is heaven because God is there and there are great benefits of living with God. Now, why does it matter where heaven is? Why does it matter that it's here and not some far off place up in the sky? When I was a kid, we had a special speaker come to our church and he said, did you know that NASA scientists have discovered the new heaven and the new earth? It's a planet in a nearby solar system. It's just the same size as Earth. It's just the same distance from its star. It's just the same makeup with water and oxygen and all these. This is the, God's creating the new planet right here in front of us. I don't know. I, I never fact-checked him, right? The point is, why does it matter where heaven is? Well, it matters because heaven is not a different world. Heaven is a picture of this world as God intended it to be. And of this world as God will remake it to be, as God is renewing it to be, as God is restoring it to be when Christ returns. What that means is this world and what we do in it matters. This world, this life matters. What we do with this world, how we live our lives now, what we do with our bodies matters. Why? Because our bodies Your body, my body, will be physically resurrected. Same body. If you don't have your body, you're not you, right? I'm going to be five foot seven in heaven for eternity. I wish I was six feet, but that's okay, right? So what we do in this world, in this life, with our bodies, with this planet, what we do matters because this is where we will live for eternity when Christ remakes the world into what he always intended it to be. See, Jesus' invitation is not follow me and someday when you die you can go away to heaven forever jesus invitation is follow me and i will make your life now a living preview of the heaven that's coming i'll send you out into the world to share this good news and this hope with everyone else so that they can be a citizen of that heaven to come heaven will be here that's one thing second point 
Heaven will be more than we can imagine or comprehend. God's kingdom is more than our minds and our hearts can grasp. There's a, a city that's described in Revelation chapters 21 and 22. And there has been a long-running debate among theologians and, and biblical scholars as to how literal is the description of this city. You've probably heard different descriptions of it, gates made out of pearls, streets paved with gold, that kind of thing. Uh, how literal is this city? Is it actually going to look exactly like it's described here? And the answer is, we don't really know. We don't know exactly how literal it is. But what we do know is that everything in the city is symbolic of something. The city itself is symbolic of God's people. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 9. Then one of the seven angels who held the seven bowls containing the seven last plagues came and said to me, Come with me, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. So he took me in the spirit to a great high mountain, and he showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God and sparkled like a precious stone, like jasper, as clear as crystal. Notice that the city is called the bride, the wife of the lamb. Who else in the Bible is called the bride or the wife of the lamb? We are. God's people, Old Testament and New Testament, are called his bride, his wife. So this whole city is a symbol of us. It's our future. It's what God sees and thinks of us. It's what he's making us into. Uh, I, I will never forget my wedding day. You've probably heard me tell this story before because it's one of the most significant memories in my life. Um, the church that Corinne and I got married in was a little country church. It didn't have a lobby. The doors at the back of the sanctuary just opened up to the parking lot. Um, and so it was a little country church, and we were getting married, and, and all the windows were, were, blinds were closed, and the lights were dimmed, and I w- everybody was in place, and the doors opened up to let the bride come in. And as the doors opened up, the sunlight streamed down the aisle, and there, floating on a beam of sunlight, with the sun shining through her wedding gown, the most beautiful thing I've ever seen in my life, Corinne just floats down the aisle. literally glowing as the sun was shining through her dress. And that memory is like seared in my brain. I will never forget that. That's what God thinks about you. That's how God looks at you. That's how he sees you. That's what he's making us into. His bride, his wife, this beautiful city that is shining like crystal. The whole city is a symbol of God's people. The gates and the foundations in the city are also symbolic of the Old Testament and the New Testament. We see that in verse 12. The city wall was broad and high with 12 gates guarded by 12 angels. And the names of the 12 tribes of Israel were written on the gates. That's the Old Testament. There were three gates on each side, east, north, south, and west. The wall of the city had 12 foundation stones, and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. That's the New Testament. Old Testament, New Testament. It's symbolic. Let's keep reading. Verse 15. The angel who talked to me in his... Uh, held in his hand a gold measuring stick to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. When he measured it, he found it was a square, as wide as it was long. In fact, its length and width and height were each 1,400 miles. Then he measured the walls and found them to be 216 feet thick, according to the human standard used by the angel. So this city is 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high. Jeff Bezos, 
flew a measly 66.5 miles and crossed into outer space and then came right back down. This city is 1,400 miles high. No wonder it looks like it's coming down out of heaven from God. How does the physics of that work? I have no idea. I'm not a physicist, not an architect. But this is what he's telling us about this city. 1,400 miles is about the distance from New York City to Miami. So the, the entire eastern seaboard of the United States. It's that long, and it's that wide, and it's that high. Now, if we, if we disregard the height just for a minute, and we just look at the base, that is 1.96 million square miles, about half the size of the continental United States. That's how big this heavenly city is. And if you take the current population density of Chicago and apply it to that base, there's enough room for 23.5 billion people to live there. Now, that's just at the base level. There's 12 foundation stones. Does that mean there are 12 layers? I don't really know. But if there were 23.5 billion people in each layer, that's a whole lot of people. There's currently 8 billion people living on planet Earth. There's way more room for everyone who wants to be there in the kingdom of heaven. And that's only the city. There's a whole lot more to heaven than just the city. We'll see that in a minute. Let's keep reading. Verse 18, the wall was made of jasper and the city was pure gold, as clear as glass. The wall of the city was built on foundation stones inlaid with 12 precious stones. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysophyte, praise the 11th jacinth and the 12th amethyst the 12 gates were made from pearls each gate was a single pearl and the main street was pure gold clear as glass wow what's the point of all that it's really just to show us that this city is more than we can even comprehend or imagine i don't know what most of those precious stones are but here's what that shows us. The things that we think are so precious and valuable here are so in abundance in heaven that they're used as building materials. Right? Uh, that we pave our streets with concrete or our parking lot with asphalt. In heaven, they do it with gold. Now, is gold a great paver? I don't know. Gold's a pretty soft metal. Maybe that wouldn't be great. The point, that's not the point. The point is there's so much of an abundance of riches and glory and splendor in heaven that the things we consider the most precious are so common there, they're the building materials, right? Heaven is more than we can imagine or comprehend. And heaven is more than just that city. See, in verse 23, the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. The nations will walk in its light, and the kings of the world will enter the city in all their glory. Its gates will never be closed at the end of day, because there is no night there. And all the nations will bring their glory and honor into the city. What are these nations, and who are these kings? And there's a city with walls and gates, but that means there's something outside the city. See, the kingdom of heaven is more than just the city. The city is the capital. And then you have the whole rest of the universe that makes up heaven. And people have some really weird ideas about heaven that just aren't true. Some people think that heaven will be an eternal church service. And we'll just sing songs for eternity and eternity and eternity. And that's not really what the Bible teaches. Some people think heaven is eternal retirement. 
I've worked hard all my life, and now I get to kick back and enjoy all the benefits of heaven for the rest of eternity. Some, some people, uh, well, Mormonism. Mormonism teaches that the men who are the most righteous will be turned into gods, and they'll be given their own planets, and their wives will be eternally pregnant, populating the, the planets that they're going to rule over. Now, ladies, how many of you that sounds like heaven? Maybe, you know, maybe the men get heaven and the women get hell. I don't know. But <laughs> Islam teaches that heaven will be filled with virgins who will please a man for all of eternity. Again, great reward for men, not so much for the women, right? But the Bible teaches us something different. The Bible says the end of the book is only the beginning of eternity. God's design for creation is restored. The Bible begins with, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And it ends with, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. God's design, his plan for creation is renewed and restored and remade so that this world will be what God always intended it to be. In heaven, we will live, we will work, artists will paint and draw and sculpt, musicians will write songs. People will play sports in heaven, right? Uh, in, in heaven, farmers will plant and till. In heaven, we will do these things. Architects will design buildings. Builders will build them. The, these things will be done in heaven, and there will be nations in heaven, and some of the kings and queens and governors who are ruling those nations will be some of us. And the holy city will be the capital of the kingdom of heaven people will cook people will eat people will create culture and the only difference is we will do it all without sin see in chapter 22 verse 3 no longer will there be a curse upon anything that's the curse of sin he's referring to for the throne of god and the lamb will be there and his servants will worship him and they will see his face and his name will be written on their foreheads and there will be no night there no need for lamps or sun, for the Lord God will shine on them, and they will reign forever and ever. We will live and reign with God forever and ever in the kingdom of heaven. And the most amazing thing is we will see God face to face. We will see his face and we will live. Let's go back to the capital city just for a minute. It's 1,400 miles wide, 1,400 miles long, and 1,400 miles high. That's a cube. Do you know what else is in the shape of a cube in the Bible? In the Old Testament, God told Moses to build a tabernacle. And that tabernacle was basically a, a portable temple where God's presence would dwell with his people. And inside that tabernacle was a very special room called the Most Holy Place, the Holy of Holies. And that's where God's presence was visible. If you went into the Holy of Holies, you would see the visible presence of God over the Ark of the Covenant. Once a year, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies and offer the sin sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel. And you could only go in once a year, and if you went in before that, it would be killed. Because you can't look on the presence of God and live unless your sin is removed, right? And that Holy of Holy places in the tabernacle was in the shape of a cube. This holy city, this heavenly city, this new Jerusalem is a giant cube. It is a giant holy of holies where God's presence is physically, visibly uh, there. Jesus will be there in person and we can all go there and see him in person, face to face, 
and live because we will not have sin. Back in chapter 21, verse 22, it says, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its light. We will be face to face with God. As, as amazing and as, as, as incomprehensible as this city is, the most incredible thing about it is that we will be with God face to face. Heaven will be here, and heaven will be more than we can comprehend or imagine. And the third and final point, heaven will be inhabited by the people who want to be there. God's kingdom will be full of citizens, and anyone who wants to become a citizen can. Look at Revelation chapter 21, verse 27. Nothing evil will be allowed to enter, nor anyone who practices shameful idolatry and dishonesty but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. A lot of people today ask, how could a loving God send people to hell? I think that's the wrong question. The right question is, why would a loving God force people to be citizens of heaven when they don't want to be? Why would God force people into heaven against their will? See, because the reality is, anyone who wants to be a citizen of heaven can be. A citizen of heaven. Look in chapter 22 at verse 10. Then he instructed me, do not seal up the prophetic words in this book, for the time is near. Let the one who is doing harm continue to do harm. Let the one who is vile continue to be vile. Let the one who is righteous continue to live righteously. Let the one who is holy continue to be holy. What is he talking about there? He's saying this, evil is the reward for evil and holiness is the reward for holiness and we have the freedom to choose. The one who chooses to be evil has the freedom to be evil and they will reap the reward of their evil. They will not be citizens of heaven. The one who chooses to follow Christ has the freedom to choose to to follow Christ and we will reap the reward of that. We can be citizens of heaven. We have the freedom to choose where our citizenship is. Heaven will be full of citizens who want to be there. God will not force anyone to come to heaven who doesn't want to be there. Verse 12, Jesus says this, Look, I am coming soon, bringing my reward with me to repay all people according to their deeds. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes. They will be permitted to enter through the gates of the city and eat the fruit of the tree of life. Outside the city are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idol worshipers, and all who love to live a lie. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this message for the churches. I am both the source of David and the heir to his throne. I am the bright morning star. God doesn't force anyone to come to heaven who doesn't want to be there, but everyone who comes to Jesus to receive citizenship in the kingdom of heaven will receive citizenship. No one will be denied citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. See verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come, let Anyone who hears this say, come. Let anyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who desires drink freely from the water of life. Anyone who wants to be a citizen of heaven can be. Uh, I printed off this nice little infographic from uh, 
the, the U.S. Citizen and Immigration Services website. And this shows the path to citizenship in the United States of America. If you are from a different country and you want to become a citizen, there's all these steps that you can take until you finally get the citizenship and it breaks it all down for you and it's super nice, right? There's a path towards citizenship in the United States. There's also a path towards citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. And that path is found in Matthew 4.19. And Jesus says this, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. This is the path to citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. The first step is to come to Jesus. He said, follow me. What, that, what does that mean? That means, I, it doesn't mean uh, um, I'm going to church a couple times a month, I'm reading my Bible a couple times a week, uh, and I'm trying hard to be a good person. To follow Jesus means I am giving my life to Jesus. My life is now living in Jesus' direction. My goal is to become a carbon copy of Jesus. I used to be following all these other things in life. Now I'm following Jesus with my life. I believe what the Bible says about Jesus is true, and I accept it as my truth, and I give my life to Christ. Follow me, Jesus says. Come to Jesus. The second step on the path of citizenship is to become like Jesus. He said, follow me and I will make you into something, right? I will change who you are. Jesus accepts us as we are, but he doesn't leave us as we are. He changes who we are so that we can become like him. Come to Jesus, become like Jesus. And the last step is to share Jesus with others. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me and I will turn you into someone whose life is a living picture of the kingdom of heaven. I will turn you into someone who demonstrates the love that is in heaven, who demonstrates the joy that is in heaven, who demonstrates the peace that is in heaven, who demonstrates the grace that is in heaven. And as you are living that life, it will draw other people and you'll have an opportunity to share that life and that love with others. That's what we're supposed to do as citizens of heaven, as ambassadors of that kingdom, to go and represent the kingdom of heaven to the world around us. Come to Jesus, become like Jesus, and share Jesus with others. Let's close with communion. I'm going to invite the musicians up. Communion is a symbol not only of Jesus' death, but also of the future banquet that will be in the kingdom of heaven. And by taking this now, we are taking a preview of that banquet. Now, I will say the banquet's going to be a lot better than a, a rice cracker and a little teeny tiny cup of juice. <laughs> but this is a preview. By taking these elements, we are saying, yes, I have decided to follow Jesus. I am asking the Holy Spirit to lead me to become more like Jesus and to give me opportunities to share Christ with others. That's what we're saying. I am a citizen of heaven. I've come to the Lord and I've applied for citizenship in the kingdom. And anyone who comes and applies for citizenship will receive it if they surrender their life to Christ. So if you have already done that, you can reaffirm that commitment by taking communion today.
If you've never done that, you can decide to surrender your life to Christ and then show it by taking communion today as the first step of living the kingdom life. The bread that we eat together is a symbol, just like everything in the city is symbolic. The bread is symbolic of the body of Christ that was broken on the cross for your sin and mine. Let's pray and then we'll take this together. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son to be broken on the cross in my place, in our place. Lord Jesus, you exchanged your life for mine. And so as I take this bread into me, to my body, I acknowledge that my life belongs to you and that you are the source of my life. Amen. Let's take the bread together. juice is non-alcoholic. It is a symbol of the blood that Jesus poured out on the cross. He signed a covenant of grace between God and man in his own blood. And by taking this blood, we acknowledge the price that Jesus paid for our sin. And then we have surrendered ourselves to him so that we can be washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. Heavenly Father, thank you for establishing that covenant through your Son. Jesus, thank you for signing it in your own blood. And as we take this juice and remember your death and look forward to your return, we acknowledge our own commitment to you and we receive your forgiveness for our sin. Yes, we are sinners, every one of us. But we thank you for the forgiveness that you purchased by your own blood, would you wash us clean in Jesus' name, amen. Second Corinthians five seventeen says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. If you have given your life to Christ to become a citizen of heaven, you are a new creation. Now, go and be who you are in Christ.